Good morning, Brianna. Hi, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about criminal justice reform? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Hello and welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is criminal justice reform. Specifically, we're going to be talking about policing. This podcast was recorded on May 20th, 2020. Let's get right into it. So my name is Brianna Walden. I'm the Associate Director for Criminal Justice at Stand Together. One thing that that I've learned about this priority initiative is that it is it is a lot bigger than I initially thought. When I thought criminal justice reform, I'm thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know really what I was thinking. But when I started getting into it, you know, I thought, okay, we have the the courts and maybe prison. But once I started talking to like Tyler or Greg Glaude and 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 Vikrant Reddy, it was it was expressed to me and it explained to me that this is really like a five different phase or five different section area that we we needed to work through. And so we we've we've talked with Vikrant about overcriminalization. Could you walk us through the other the other four and then we'll dive into the second phase which is I believe policing. Yeah, absolutely. So really we have five portfolios as you mentioned that span the chronology of a person's involvement in the justice system. So starting at the very beginning with what are the laws in the books? And how have that, how have the, the proliferation of those laws constituted over criminalization to policing, our second portfolio? How are those laws being enforced within communities? Our third portfolio is due process. Are those who have been accused of a crime realizing their constitutionally guaranteed rights? The fourth is sentencing. Sentencing, our efforts here are to promote more proportionate sentences that before the punishment fits the crime. And finally, we have prison and reentry. And that is really how can we focus on effectively using the, the time that someone spends incarcerated in a way that's going to prioritize rehabilitation so that when they come out and they come back to our communities, as 95% of people who are currently incarcerated do, that represents about 650,000 people a year are coming home. You know, when they do that, we want to make sure that they're better than when they first went in and that they they have the opportunity to succeed and and reintegrate and become contributing members of society. Um, so really, as we think about that, uh, we talk a lot about front end versus back end. So if you think about sentencing, that inflection point where a person has been convicted of breaking the law, right, that from there on is back end. And anything before that is what we call front end. So looking at overcriminalization, looking at policing and due process, our community really feels like the best opportunity to have long-term impact on our long-term objectives for criminal justice reform is uh, really doubling down on our front end portfolios. Um, that's not to say that we don't still work on sentencing in prison and reentry. We certainly do, and in fact, we often find that reentry is the best way to broaden the tent and to bring more port partners on board. It's, it's often the, the low hanging fruit, if you will. But as it relates to what is gonna matter the most for people in the long run, 
we want to focus on, on limiting justice system involvement. So how do we keep people out of the system in the first place or divert them to less punitive measures rather than constantly focusing on breaking the cycle for people who are already in the system? I, I think of the, analog, uh, the allegory of, of a waterfall, right? You have this rushing river and there's a waterfall. And so if we're, we're only focusing on back end, we're just pulling people out as they go over the waterfall on the other side. But how can we go upstream and build a dam uh, that'll stop people from falling in in the first place and going over the edge? And that's really what we mean by our front end work to limit people's involvement in the justice system. And policing really is is at the heart of that. I like that visualization. That really helps me understand the whole idea of there's two different sides. And yeah, we can save people all day as they, they're surviving the fall over the waterfall. But wouldn't it be better if we just stopped them from going over in the first place? I, I, I like that. Uh, when I was thinking about this podcast and what what we would be talking about, there were two things that came to mind. The first was uh, a, a discussion I had with a colleague of mine in a previous job. He used to be, uh, I think he was a sheriff or he worked in the sheriff's department. And we were talking about the fact that there were police organizations all over the state that had uh, started buying surplus military equipment. And they were repurposing this surplus military equipment for use in their own communities. And I said that concerned me. And he said, well, you have to understand, Dwayne, a lot of these sheriff's offices and a lot of these police departments are facing military-grade weapons from the, the people they're trying to apprehend. So we need to have this on the streets. And, well, I thought maybe we need to just repeal the laws. But that was me. You know, it was the libertarian side of me. Uh, but then a, a, another conversation or another thing that I just witnessed that really made me interested in this conversation even more, I believe it was in Texas. And in Texas, there were these hardened criminals who had decided that they were going to reopen a bar and that they were going to go to this bar and they were going to drink. And the response at that point was a military vehicle. I believe it was an MRAP with heavily armed police officers to go in and extract these people. And I thought, is that is that really necessary? Did you need a military vehicle to, to go pull people out of this bar? I don't know that you did. I'm thinking that that's part of what we're going to talk about. But I also think there's there's a lot more than just that. So please walk me through the entire portfolio on policing. Absolutely. We believe that police are the entry point to the criminal justice system, and ultimately they're held accountable for public safety. But the only way to effectively achieve public safety is by co-producing it with the communities that they're sworn to serve and protect. So policing practices really, at the end of the day, need to be building community trust and collaboration. And when you have things like the militarization of police or civil asset forfeiture, or a lot of other practices that are occurring today, that that destroys that community trust and collaboration. It really breaks down the ability to work collaboratively with communities and law enforcement. And we can see why this is important, right? Law enforcement resources ought to be directed at preventing and solving serious crime, not enforcing over criminalization. But to do that, you really need information. You need uh, you need the trust of the community to share information that will help 
you solve a homicide, for example. Um, our clearance rate, unfortunately, is is terrible across the country right now. I don't have the exact statistics on the top of my head, and it varies from region to region, but the number of unsolved crimes, and, and often very severe crimes, right, uh, severe sexual assault, homicide, the like, is, is unfortunately tragically high. And so we believe that community trust can grow when police are really focusing their resources on solving, preventing that serious crime and diverting people to non-criminal justice alternatives whenever appropriate, rather than uh, merely enforcing over-criminalization. What do you, so, what do you mean I, by, I, by I, let, let's, let's, uh, one thing that I do worry about when I, when I do these podcasts is the, uh, the curse of knowledge. And that's the idea that once I know an idea, I assume everyone knows it. So what are these non, uh, what was it you just said, the non-criminal justice alternatives? Yeah. So a lot of what we mean by over-criminalization is, you know, we have criminalized mental illness in many cases. We've criminalized substance abuse and addiction. Um, we've criminalized poverty. And at the end of the day, the police are the ones that have to enforce this. So we're asking so much of our law enforcement officers to be able to be social workers and, and mental health experts, et cetera. So rather than make arrests for the person who is having a mental health breakdown in the middle of the street, for example, a much better option is to divert those people into a treatment program that can actually help solve their underlying issues rather than lock them up in a jail cell, which, which isn't going to address their problem at all. Now, I will say, we, we, it's a both-and approach to this solution. We can't just have the policy change. We need the community support systems to actually have these kinds of treatment centers. So that's why it's so exciting that Stand Together Foundation, for example, is supporting various catalyst programs that provide diversion alternatives on the front end. Um, where law enforcement can take people to a program like the Other Side Academy or like the jo Lone Star Justice Alliance, for example, which is a brand new Catalyst partner in the latest cohort. These are groups that are working with folks to address their underlying challenges and help them overcome those rather than just funnel them straight into the traditional justice system of, of incarceration and, and the cycle that that often ensues. There was something else that you mentioned that I wanted to to really dig into, and that was uh, you said, and I don't know why it's slipping my mind. It's one of the things I wanted to talk. Civil asset forfeiture. Why? Why did I forget forget that? That's that's. I don't know why. One of the I, first things that AFP started working on yeah. uh, to start getting into criminal justice. Uh, again, I don't have to worry about the curse of knowledge too much, too often, because my head's like a sieve and so many things fall out of it. But yeah, civil asset forfeiture. And now I hear that, and I also hear the phrase policing for profit. Those are often together. I know, I, if I'm not, unless I'm mistaking, civil asset forfeiture is a part of the idea of policing for profit, but not the whole. So would you mind walking us through what civil asset forfeiture is and then mm -hmm. maybe dig into policing for profit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a great example of one of really, I consider three categories of things that drive encounters with police that are often unnecessary, um, that can feel unfair or disrespectful, or can lead to disproportionate outcomes for citizens, including in, in some tragic cases, the loss of life 
and really erode trust and collaboration. So we talked a little bit about overcriminalization um, and and how the police can be enforcing that. Um, that's one category. Another category is really this idea of perverse incentives. So you think about civil asset forfeiture, which the, the term policing for profit is often used because in many places, law enforcement can pull someone over, find perhaps a, lot, a large amount of cash, seize that cash, and then the person has to actually go to court and prove their property is innocent of any crime, right? So it, it turns justice and due process completely on its head, uh, where instead of the state being responsible for proving a person guilty, the individual property owner has to prove their property innocent. And in many cases, the, the law enforcement agency that seizes that is able to actually keep it if that doesn't occur. Now, this, sounds, so this sounds kind of far-fetched to someone who hears it for the first time, because I've, I've had these conversations and people don't understand. First, they don't believe this is happening. They, they believe there's often more to the story and mm -hmm. they don't understand how this could happen. So let's take a step back. Someone's driving along and they have a, a large amount of cash. They just take it. What's the justification for that? Yeah, so in most cases, it's the idea that it's uh, associated with drugs, right? So this is drug money, and, and if you're a criminal and you are selling drugs, you shouldn't be allowed to keep the proceeds of that criminal activity. But the thing is, if you suspect a person of dealing drugs such that you have reasonable suspicion to make an arrest, for example, um, or to press charges— that person goes through the criminal justice system, right? So they they have a certain amount of rights that are afforded them. Um, you know, there, there's a whole process to determine their guilt or innocence. On the other hand, the property that's that seized, either as a result of an arrest or without even making that arrest or pressing charges against that individual property owner, that goes through the civil process, the civil justice process, which does not carry the same, does not afford the same rights as the criminal process. And so what many states have done is to reform this by requiring a criminal conviction before any property can be seized, for example, or by changing uh, where the, the funds ultimately go to the general fund instead of directly back into that law enforcement agency that's making the seizure. The problem is with the forfeiture, right? So there's there's seizure and then there's forfeiture. Forfeiture is when you keep the property in the funds. Police should be allowed to seize anything that that meets the standard of proof that's that it's associated with a crime, right? If they if they catch somebody in the act of selling drugs and there's a load of money on them there, right? Like that's that's a that's a different process that should go through the criminal process. Um, but ultimately what we're talking about is is forfeiture, which is the ability to keep um, that property. When and I, when it's, I, it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. I just keep having additional thoughts. Uh, it's not it. only, it's not only cash, right? And there's, there's an example of Russ Caswell, um, Institute for Justice was his lawyer and did a phenomenal piece on him. He owned a motel and it was his, his life's investment, right? This was his retirement plan. This was his, uh, how he was providing for his family. And because there were some people who were, um, there was a suspicion of illegal activity occurring on the hotel property, 
Um, so somebody thought something was uh, reported to have been illegally occurring within one of the rooms that were, that were rented by a customer. Um, the, the state came in and seized his entire motel and took that from him. And, and fortunately, Institute for Justice was able to fight on his behalf. But this is another example. It's not just the, the, the roadside um, you know, traffic stop that leads to seizing cash. It can occur in, in many different ways. It's what I've what I've read about this. One one thing I've seen, and correct me if, of course if I'm wrong. But when this goes to court, they're not actually charging the person who owned this property with anything. They're actually naming the property itself as the defendant. So when when it goes to court, it isn't the state versus Dwayne. It's the state versus a Winnebago or whatever. Is that accurate? Yep, that's right. That's exactly right. It leads to these ludicrous uh, titles of, of cases uh, where you have, you know, the, the state of Texas versus $600,000, for example. And so if they, so they take, they take my $600,000, you know, I wish I had that problem, but they take that money and then I have to prove a negative essentially. And I, I may have done nothing wrong. But yet here I am in court having to expend just to get my property back, which shouldn't have been seized in the first place. And this has been incentivized how? So the incentive really is that profit that you started out by talking about, right? So uh, the law enforcement agencies, and and I want to be clear, you know, there are obviously bad actors everywhere, including among police. But what we're talking about here is a system that encourages bad acting and that's where we need to focus our energy you have a lot of law enforcements that are are constituting a significant amount of their budget through civil asset forfeiture or through traffic tickets or through fines and fees um, that are imposed upon criminal defendants and so you have a lot of pressure from um, the from supervisors and police chiefs on your line cops to to continue this activity because you know there are of course the egregious cases like the department in Oklahoma where they bought a margarita machine with civil asset forfeiture funds. But on the flip side, you also have cases where this money is going right back into salary and benefits and uh, essential law enforcement activities. And so really, I think what's important for our listeners to take away is that it's lawmakers that need to be held accountable to both end the practice of civil asset forfeiture, but also ensure that law enforcement departments are being adequately funded to carry out the important duty of protecting public safety. Did did you say margarita machine? I sure did. You can Google it. Wow. So we've talked about policing for profit, civil asset forfeiture. We talked a little bit about the militarization. Is there anything about the policing section of, of criminal justice reform we need to really discuss before we get into the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, really, I think there's three things that are um, eroding trust and collaboration. One is um, the, the number of laws in the books that, um, you know, police are often enforcing this overcriminalization that is um, creating unnecessary contact and diverting scarce justice system resources from solving more serious crime 
um, and generating unnecessary criminal records for individuals. We talked about some of the perverse incentives like civil asset forfeiture, also things like arrest quotas or qualified immunity, which drive police behavior with little accountability or transparency. And, and really a better approach to, to these perverse incentives would be to reward positive community engagement and effective violence reduction strategies for police rather than arrest quotas or civil asset forfeiture. The third category that is driving this, often sort of eroding trust and collaboration between law enforcement and communities, is what I would call a negative police culture. So rather than encourage a culture of accountability and humility and growth, police have this thing called the code of silence. It's this 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 brotherhood, the thin blue line you might have heard of, of um, when they see their colleagues, for example, using unnecessary force, it's understood that you don't report that. You don't hold people accountable to that because you are your tribe, right? And you, you stand by your tribe no matter what. Um, so that combined with intervention from police unions really creates an environment that stifles change and it protects bad apples. So, uh, you know, I think that there are ways that we can impact that negative police culture through addressing use of force policies, addressing law enforcement training through the academy, recruitment. Who are you who are you appealing to to become a police officer? Um, as you mentioned before, the militarized tactics and equipment, which often pit officers against their community. All of these things can reinforce a, a defensive fear-based approach, which further solidifies this code of silence and this us against the world mentality. Um, but by addressing some of that, we can we can start to break that down and encourage it. The, the notion of Sir Robert Peel, who was really the founder of modern day policing, who said, the police are the public and the public are the police. There should be no line, no matter how thin, between the police and their communities. They're, that They should be one and the same. So let's let's step into the uh, the community vision. Just as a reminder, we break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. When we look at policing specifically as part of the criminal justice reform portfolio, how do we see what we're what we're advocating sort of being a child for this vision? So when we think about breaking barriers for people to realize their full opportunity and their full potential, uh, one of the biggest barriers, unfortunately, in our society is a criminal record. Having a criminal record carries so many collateral consequences or legal restrictions to pursuing employment or higher education or or finding housing. Um, And while, of course, we are trying to roll that back, um, and reduce the number of consequences that are associated with a criminal record, why not you start by reducing the number of people who have a criminal record? And that's really where policing comes in, because it's that first contact with law enforcement officer that can often start you on two very different journeys. One, on the one hand, it might be a journey towards treatment and diversion into a program that addresses the root cause of the behavior. Um, and on the other hand, a, a ticket straight to jail and a criminal record. And so I think that um, that's just one example of 
of how important it is to our focus on policing as it relates to breaking barriers that keep people from realizing their potential. Yeah, that that um, criminal record is such a such a huge barrier, and again, we we don't want to give the the impression that if you break the law, you shouldn't have repercussions for that, but that there are. Things that are being done today that we need to really look at. I, I, what I what I talked about uh, just recently, I was talking with a group of activists, and my point to them was: Look, we need to to think about honestly what Milton Friedman said about about socialism. It applies here too. And what he said was: We need to stop looking at what is promised and look at what is delivered. And the purpose mm-hmm. of the criminal justice system is to make society safer. To make society safe. Is what we're doing now resulting in that, or is it actually doing more harm than good? And when we're erecting barriers that make it impossible for for people to succeed, for people to realize their potential, we could actually be contributing to future crime through, through these actions. So we need to step back and say, okay, this is what was promised. This is what we intended. Is that what is being delivered? That's absolutely right. Let's look at equal rights because I've got some ideas here, but I'm curious what you're going to say. System of equal rights articulated in the Declaration of Independence requires respect for the dignity of all people and equality under the law. How does this principle relate to policing? Such a good question and the topic of so much discussion and debate today. What you see is a dynamic that happens in the field which is to say that law enforcement is certainly um, wanting to practice hotspots policing or proactive policing, it's sometimes called, wherein they deploy resources to high crime areas to, to more effectively utilize scarce resources. That becomes a problem when, when, again, it comes down to what crime are you enforcing, right? Is it primarily drug crime? Is it primarily drug use? Is it other more serious crime that the community is concerned about, for example? And and let me be clear, there can be a lot of violence associated with drug crime. And so I'm not trying to, to write that off. But what you often see is law enforcement is much more willing to make an arrest of a high school kid who's selling a small amount of marijuana on the street corner in a neighborhood where it's not going to turn out that that high school kid is the son of the mayor or the cousin of uh, of a local judge, for example. And so you often see neighborhoods that are lower income and less connected receiving a higher degree of law enforcement presence, um, a higher degree of contact with law enforcement which then results in more people within those communities with a criminal record. There's a scholar who coined the term million dollar block. And what that term means is that there is, and he actually has the research to back this up, the community, the, the, the locality, the local jurisdiction is spending a million dollars or more in jailing residents from one block because so many people in that neighborhood have been um, picked up for drugs or other, other crimes and incarcerated. And it's so sad, right? Because you think of, wow, there's so many better ways to spend a million dollars. 
that could help people succeed, could help them access education and employment opportunities. But unfortunately, what often happens is they're going to the criminal justice system. And to make things even worse, I mentioned people struggling with mental health or addiction issues. A lot of times treatment and programming for that can only be effectively accessed through the criminal justice system. So folks who don't have a criminal record aren't able to get the kind of programming that they really need to address those underlying issues, while folks who do have a criminal record can. And so there's just so many ways in which our community, by working across all four key institutions, can make a huge difference for people living in poverty to help them overcome that and find a better path rather than the criminal justice system. In our vision, yeah, where we vision. have the, uh, yeah. the, the policing reforms we want done, how does that result in people succeeding by creating value for others, motivating them to assist rather than to harm one another? Where's the mutual benefit in our, in our policing reforms? That's such a great question, and I see it really in that collaboration I talked about at the beginning of our conversation. Law enforcement needs the community to be able to effectively do their jobs, and the community needs law enforcement to, um, in many cases, be safe and, and protected from crime, right? And so I think the mutual benefit is when you have law enforcement departments that are responsive to their communities and where the communities have voice into how they want to be policed. And there's that mutual buy-in that we are all accountable for public safety. And it's not a us versus them, you know, don't snitch to the cops mentality, which often creates cover for more and more violence within. Yeah, I think about mutual benefit and I think about policing and... I would I would love love there to be a society where when a person sees the police there isn't that that fear. You don't you don't you don't have fear from people that you mutually benefit from. I mm -hmm. I don't want to give the impression that everybody who looks at, at a police officer when they see them feels fear, but there's there's a huge part of society that does and it, and it it's these reforms that could lead to a society where there isn't that fear anymore. I would I would hope uh, you know, if you move yeah. if you move down that spectrum where you get rid of the overcriminalization and you have the policing reforms in place, that mentality, that that fear, that mental model, almost in, you know, you could say an internal barrier of seeing that that relationship as being adversarial, that goes away, which would in turn lead us to openness, where you have right. the, the free movement of ideas, resources, and people generating knowledge, innovation, and opportunity, fueling progress throughout society. Talk about openness and policing reform, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thought on, on mutual benefit. Uh, you know, we have decided, um, you know, through entering into a social contract to really outsource the use of force. And when you think about uh, as as Mr. Koch says, government has a monopoly on on force. Nowhere is that more evident than when you look at police. And so, in theory, again, it's much more beneficial for us to to do that, such that we're not constantly living in fear of our lives and in fear of our property being stolen, and and you know having to waste a lot of time and energy and resources to protecting ourselves at every turn from each other, right? And so. I, you know, I think there's there's a there's a huge 
way in which we can see government functioning in its proper and limited role in a mutually beneficial way when, when law enforcement is really serving that, that correct role. Um, and they have the trust and the buy-in from the communities. And as you said, that leads us perfectly into openness, right? Because then that, that creates a space in which people can interact with one another in, in a way that generates value and allows them to achieve self-actualization and, and realize their, their skills and talents and interests. And, you know, we have to think about police as people too, right? You know, these are often folks who... Maybe their father or their uncle was a cop or they feel called to protect people or to do good in some way. And so I think helping to show and build that empathy between law enforcement and the communities they serve, that at the end of the day, we have so much in common. We have more in common than we have than than what divides us. And so how can we be open to each other and empathetic to each other and open to the idea that just because a person wears a badge, it doesn't mean that they're out to get you or that they're prejudiced against you in some way. And so, you know, I think that there's so much more we can do and are doing through exploring various partnerships um, to help build that empathy and help people understand what it's like to walk a mile in the other person's shoes, which I think can lend to uh, uh, an, an explosion of openness that Um, unfortunately, really isn't the case in many communities today. Now, that created a a mental model, just an explosion of of openness. I wonder, I I just wonder what that would look like. Self-actualization. To to, to a time where we get to see that. Me too. Me too. Self-actualization. I think we've we've talked a bit about self-actualization already, but I'm curious if you could build on that and really give an idea of what that looks like through the lens of policing. Because when, when we look at it, it says, for such a society to exist, its key institutions, education, communities, business, government, remove rather than erect barriers to people realizing their potential and finding fulfillment. And as more people have the opportunity to use their unique talents to succeed by helping others improve their lives, society flourishes. Reading into it, we, we see this virtuous cycle begin. As people are succeeding, Others succeed because they're able to to live in a society that's flourishing rather than being, uh, you know, in the downward spiral. So when it comes to self-actualization, how does policing reform relate to that? Yeah, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, people need to be able to be secure and have their material needs met before they can move into those higher levels of self-actualization. And so, again, police as as ultimately being held accountable for public safety can serve a huge role if they're doing their their job effectively um, and not enforcing over criminalization or um, responding to perverse incentives or perpetuating an internal culture of uh, that's not open and that's um, that's not transparent or accountable. You know, that's that's such an important bedrock for what facilitates that feeling of security and safety. And unfortunately today in many communities, they feel like rather than the police facilitating that, it's quite the opposite. And they feel in many cases legitimately so that that police themselves are carrying out violence against their community. And so how can we change that? How can we help to promote 
a culture of accountability, transparency, where law enforcement really is fulfilling their proper role of helping to create an environment of safety and security where those who break the law don't get away with it and and people can then move into a more self-actualized position higher up up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you think about the barriers that we talked about earlier, that barrier of being, you know, having that criminal record, how often that keeps someone from actually reaching their their potential. They they have things they want to go do, yet they can't do that because of this barrier, this this barrier that's been erected. And how many people are unable to to reach their potential because of that when we have the, the proper reforms and people are are able to do this when those barriers aren't erected. Going back to the very first part of it, key institutions remove rather than erect barriers. When that's going on, people have a greater opportunity to reach their full potential. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So I'm sure, that, I mean, we've covered a lot so far into this. Um, we've talked about the, the what it is that we stand for, the why through the lens of the vision and the mutually reinforcing principles, why we believe that, and how it's how it's actually removing those barriers rather than erecting them. The final question that I have for you is, what is there that we haven't talked about that we should? Is there something that that you wanted to cover that we haven't yet talked about? Such a good question. I think I feel like we've covered so much ground. I guess maybe I would just say in thinking through the four um, key institutions that represent our theory of change across the Stand Together community, there's so much to be had here, right? We've talked about from a government perspective, obviously, police and law enforcement are are an expression of of the key institution of government. There are so many policies that can be changed relating to civil asset forfeiture, um, relating to um, even internal policies within police departments. There are 18,000 law enforcement departments across the country. So you talk about kind of diffusion of power and the potential for bottom-up solutions. So much can be done within that department to better incorporate the needs and the desires and wishes of the community member and police as they as they want to be policed, there's a huge opportunity there. Um, certainly in communities, the key institution of communities, right? There are a lot of exciting investments that Stand Together Foundation has made and Catalyst that are providing better community infrastructure and diversion alternatives for folks um, so that law enforcement can take some, them somewhere other than booking them in a jail. Thinking through business and education, um, the examples are perhaps less obvious as it relates to policing, but we're partnering, the Charles Koch Foundation is partnering with some of the leading minds in this field. Barry Friedman is a faculty driver at New York University Law School who founded the Policing Project, which is a university center that we started supporting in an expanded way just this past year. And they're really helping to define what good policing looks like and really push the boundaries for what the future of policing can look like in America. So I'm really excited that this is a core part of our criminal justice reform work. I think it's an area that often gets overlooked and would love any feedback that you or your listeners have on helping to advance our our positive vision for policing. 
Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.